Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. How are you guys? So glad that you're here. As always, if you're sitting too close to somebody that you really don't like, uh, you have options. Don't worry. You don't feel like you're stuck with them. Now, if you're married to that person, uh, you need counseling. But if it's somebody you don't want to be sitting next to, always invite you. First, third service, there's a little bit more room. And then we will be doing kind of a facelift to the upstairs to create uh, another video-type venue uh, if you'd rather watch service from there. So just always want to throw out some options in case that person next to you uh, maybe needs the spiritual gifting of a shower, you know, no, but that's none of us here. No, you're good. Um, we are in Colossians. And so if you have your Bibles open up to chapter three, we're going to geek out a little bit this morning. So I hope you are prepared and ready. Uh, the test at the end of the quarter, we'll be covering some of this. Just making sure you're paying attention. And we're only going to be in the first four verses of Colossians three. My wife keeps giving me a hard time. She's like, are we ever going to get through Colossians? Are we going to take the same amount of time as Matthew? I think we're making great progress. And so we are going to focus on these four verses this morning as she's giving me that smile and that look. So chapter one, chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. <clears throat> Let's stop there. There's plenty for us to chew on. So Paul starts in, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you have a different translation, and I preach out of the ESV, you might have a translation that says, since then, meaning uh, there, it's not up to question, but since you have been, and just the nerd and the geek that I am, in the original, it really is an if kind of question. And I don't think Paul's looking at the Colossian church wondering if they're saved or not. I think it's an argumentative tactic and not the kind of arguing where you want to pull the car over and threaten the kids kind of arguing. Like a legal argument is what Paul's doing. Paul's a lawyer. He has a legal argument here, and he's talking about if you really are. And we've all done this with our kids. I think I just did this yesterday with one of my daughters. I said, if you love your daddy, would you get me a glass of water? Because I was eating chili, and I was at the game. I just couldn't settle that down, right? And so if you love me, would you? Well, of course she does, and then I got a glass of water. And so Paul has the same kind of mentality here. If you have been raised with Christ, you might be thinking, raised with Christ. That might be, maybe if you're new to faith or Christianity or the word, and you're kind of wondering, what, I didn't know I was ever buried. Uh, is it even, what's this raising about? And Paul is connecting clear back to chapter 2, verse 12. He says, having been buried with him, with Jesus in baptism. That's why we baptize when we lower you down in the water. Some of you a little faster than the others. And because you've been buried with Christ in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in him, in the powerful working of God. So when we talk about if you've been raised with Christ, we're talking about our faith in Christ. Now, every time we talk about baptism, I always go to Romans chapter 6. And so if you would turn with me, hold Colossians, we'll come back. Go to Romans 6 for me, because I think Paul is talking about similar things. We're going to tie a nice little bow uh, with all of this together. Now, in Romans 6, 
Paul is making a very good legal argument of the gospel. I think the best explanation of the gospel is the book of Romans. And when he starts chapter 6, he is starting the argument about our sanctification, where the end of 3 all the way to chapter 5, he's talking about our justification, being legally declared innocence by God because of our faith and because of the blood of Jesus. But now in verse six or chapter six and seven and eight, he's talking about sanctification, this progressive growing and becoming like Christ right now as this new person. And so starting in verse four, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, right? So we were buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that's why we are raised to new life. The old is dead, the new has been raised in Christ by faith. For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And see, what I love about that is our death in Christ being raised to new life and then our resurrection is going to be in Christ. Well, what's the in-between? Our life in Christ. That's why we don't hold you under and keep you under at baptism and just send you on to be with the Lord. That your life now matters and what you do in this newness of life matters. And this is what Paul is talking about, this sanctification, us growing and becoming like Jesus. And he uses three words to describe this progression of our sanctification. The first word he uses is no. Look at verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus. B.C. Nick, before Christ Nick, was crucified with Jesus, with him, in order that the old, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the part of this process for us is we have to know B.C. Nick, the old Nick who lived in his sin, he's dead and gone and thank the Lord for it. Because of the brokenness, not only that I bring on myself, but those around me. And so the sanctification process, I have to know that the old self is dead and gone. The next word, look at verse 11, consider. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this is something we know, but then we have to consider it, almost like a matter of our will where it's not just knowing the right things, but how are we going to behave because of it? Because sin is still going to come into our lives and the temptations of it to get us to walk away from following Jesus. But we have to consider, okay, what does sin have to offer me? Temporary pleasure, a little bit of fun that night, but brokenness upon brokenness, upon pain, upon grief. But what does Christ have to offer me? We have to consider this, and our lives should reflect what we know, and now we are considering, and now we act upon it. And he goes to the next word is present. Look at verse 13. Do not present your members, talking about our physical body, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, raised to new life, and your members, your physical body, to God as instruments for righteousness. You ever think of your body, your life as an instrument to God? Maybe it would be, let's think like uh, woodworking, you know, you got a hammer and a saw and a screwdriver, stuff like that, or even musical, we're all a bunch of flutes or tubas or saxophones, that's all I pretty much know right there in instruments of school, that's all I got. 
but we are an instrument. Uh, Paul would say it this way in Ephesians. We are his workmanship, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he created us with a purpose in mind that we would present ourselves as instruments to be used by God. That's how we should, again, know, consider, and present ourselves to him. And so what Paul is saying here in Colossians is that if we have been raised with Christ, we know B.C. Nick is dead and gone. That we have considered the options that we can continue to live in sin or we can live for Christ and now we present ourselves to God. And this is really important because in this day and age, if we go back in time 2,000 years ago with Paul and the culture that he was living is specifically within the pagan religions of the day. There was no real big connection between your behavior and your beliefs. You could live and do whatever you wanted Monday through Friday or whenever your deity wanted you to worship on. And then you could walk into your little temple of worship, cast whatever chanting and spells and rituals and altar gifts that you were supposed to lay. And it was perfectly fine that you could behave any way you wanted, and as long as you did these things, said these things, believed these things, it was perfectly fine. And so when Paul shows up on the scene and he's talking about Jesus and the gospel, about how what we do with our lives matters, this was a completely different upside-down thought in that day and age. See, in the uh, early church, there was something called Gnosticism. And we see early hintings of it even here. So Gnosticism, what they would believe is that everything spiritual was good. Your soul, your spirit, everything that had to do with the spiritual world was good. Everything that had to do with the physical world was evil. And so with that understanding, that's where they could, in their physical life, sleep around, get drunk, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it was all fine because that was the physical world and there was no connection between the two. But anything that had to do with the spiritual world, that's where their beliefs and their practices mattered within their religion. But there was no connection between the two. And sadly, I think some of that is coming back into the church. And so you have this early Gnosticism where they separated body and soul and there was no connection between the two. And so we're going to geek out is going to get real deep, real heavy, real quick. And just a little word of encouragement. I always want to geek out at times where Scripture leads us just to show that the pool of Christianity that we swim in, it, it can go as deep as you want to go. It is shallow enough for our kids and Cal kids to play and understand the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you want to go deep, the Word of God will go deep. And, and so the critics that attack us and say that we are weak-minded and we're simple-minded, I don't think they understand the depth of what Christianity and what faith in Jesus means. And so we're going to go deep real quick. As we study God, that's theology, which is very important. That should be the number one thing that we are about. But also we should study ourselves, which is called anthropology, the study of human nature. And we have to understand when we study human nature, all components of it meaning specifically within what Paul is talking here, how is our human soul and body connected? Now, there's four Christian beliefs about anthropology. And so anthropological, there's something called monism, meaning that our body and our soul are of the same substance. They're just two different sides of the same thing, kind of like two different sides of the same coin. The issue with that along with a few scriptures, and, and a logical argument is, what happens when the body dies? If the body dies and it's of the same substance as the soul, well, then the soul dies. 
but we know that our body will die and the soul continues on, but will be resurrected again. And so just that logical scriptural arguments kind of pulls monism, anthropological monism to the side. There's a second one called anthropological dualism or dichotomy, meaning that you have a human soul and body and they do not intersect, they do not connect. This is where some of that early Gnosticism comes into play. And they would say it's almost like two rails of a train track, and they never touch, they never intersect. And they would elevate your soul, and they would diminish your body. And kind of like this, they would just say, you are a soul, you just have a body. And that wouldn't be quite uh, the best biblical description of our uh, human nature, because that's where you would get into whatever you do with your body really doesn't matter as long as you take care of your soul. Paul would say, no, it matters what we do with our body. Even when we talk about, we'll talk about next week in verse 10, we see how we're created in the image of God. When we talk about image of God, it does include our body. And some people try to reverse engineer it. Well, if image of God means a body, that means God has to have a body. No, we are like God in our physical body, but it doesn't mean God is like us and has a physical body. And so again, scripture shows that there is soul, there's body. They're not separate and unconnected, that there is something about it. There is a third view called anthropological trichotomy, meaning you have a soul, spirit, and body. And there's some verses that they use to try to defend this. And what you see is any in those scriptures, you could uh, interchange the word soul or spirit, and you, we lose no essence of the truth of scripture. And so they're actually the same thing. Some of the verses, one of the main key ones that people use to defend it is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword to divide soul and spirit. What the real meaning actually kind of shows is that the soul and spirit are the same thing, meaning that the word of God is so powerful, it can divide what is undividable, your soul and your spirit. And so anytime in scripture we see those words used in relation to man, they can be interchangeable. And so for me, what I hold to is called hylomorphism, anthropological hylomorphism, right? First time I heard it, first hundred times I heard that, it went like that. So go with me here. So that word hylomorphism, it's two Greek words put together, meaning matter and form. The best analogy I like is like a marble statue. Think of uh, the Statue of David by Michelangelo, right? So if you get rid of the marble, do you have a Statue of David? No, not at all. You have nothing. Now, if you get rid of the form, the, the carving of the person of David, do you have a statue? No, you just have a hunk of marble. That these two uh, dimensions are, there's a unity between them. They're not the same. They're not disconnected, but there's a unity of those together, hylomorphism. And so the unity of these two dimensions, soul and body, shows that there's a unity between our physical life, what we do with our body, and our spiritual life, our soul. And so Paul would say it matters what we do with our body, not because of some theological truth, but because of who we are by creation and that creation in the image of God that there is a connection between our physical body and our spiritual soul, spirit, soul, whatever word you want to use, there is a unity of those two dimensions. And that's why both our calling and our conduct matter. Our doctrine and our duty matter, or our position or our practice. Those things matter in our life because God cares about what we do with our body. 
is it for, yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, 20 talks about honor the Lord with your body because you've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, not just your soul and your spirit, but it matters what you do because there is a unity between these two dimensions. And in this day, the pagan religions could care less about personal morality. You could live it up any kind of sin, whatever kind of debauchery, and it was perfectly fine as long as you held to these beliefs. And there was no connection between belief and behavior, and practically Christianity, I think, is falling back into that. That outside of Sundays and Wednesdays, we can go off and we can live and do whatever that we want, and as long as we show up here on the holy day and we come to the altar and we ask for forgiveness, it's perfectly fine with what we do with our bodies. Paul would say, may it never be. It matters how we live in the body. Because again, our soul, our body, there is a unity, a connection between them. Because it does little good if Christians, we, followers of Jesus, declare and defend the truth of Scripture, defend the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, but we fail to demonstrate it in our everyday lives. There's a word for that. And Jesus used it frequently. He called them hypocrites. Where we say, but we live. And those are two different things. And we can say what we think all day long, but we live what we believe. And this is what Paul is hitting at. If you've been raised with Christ, now we need to talk about what does that look like in between our being buried with Christ and our resurrection. What's all that in the middle? The life that is meant to honor Jesus. And so he tells us to seek the things that are above. And now this might sting, and if it does, <clears throat> you're welcome. We can quote the Bible, but if we don't change our lifestyle and obey it, it's satanic. You might be thinking, that's a bold stance to take there, pastor. But think about it. Who quoted the Bible to Jesus and didn't believe a word of it? Satan. And so if our beliefs do not cause us to change our behavior, to love Jesus, to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, that's not a Christian belief. The idea that we would hold to a doctrine and our behavior would not follow, this would be perplexing to the Apostle Paul. This wouldn't even be, Jesus would have a hard time. And I thought you said you were a follower of me. Oh, yeah, Jesus, we love you. Let me tell you all about you. You died on this day, and you went into the grave for three days and rose again, and you're the propitiation and justification, sanctification, all the Asian words that work within Christianity. Yeah, but, you're, but you're, your beliefs and your behavior, they're not matching. That would be perplexing to the Lord. And I think that's one of the hints in which the church, I think we need to take a stronger stance in. Now, are we always going to know more than what we believe? Absolutely. But are we pursuing that as we, the more we know, are we considering and the more are we presenting ourselves to the Lord? And so Paul would say, if you've been raised with Christ through faith, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above. That word there in the original Greek means to get to the bottom of the matter, to investigate, and so there's a lot of things in our faith that are kind of confusing at times. 
And a lot of critics try to show where Scripture uh, is contradictory to each other, and they think we, you know, are simple-minded and narrow-minded, and they, we've never heard of those contradictions before. Or you might have issues with, you know, the problem of evil. How do we have an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God, but evil exists, and he allows and permits evil in our world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Which I think is the number one issue that people walk away from their faith, and they're deconstructing, if you remember that conversation because they can't answer that. Get to the bottom of the matter of it. Investigate it. Yes, there is going to be things about your faith that you're probably going to doubt and have struggles and, and, and lack understanding in. Investigate that. I love the book, The Case for Christ. A guy named Lee Strobel wrote it, and the whole thing came about because his wife came to faith. They even made a movie about it, so you know it's a good book if they made a movie about it. That's why we had to make a movie about the Bible. And so... He investigates Jesus. And why? Because his wife came to faith. He did it because not that he was trying to get answers. He was trying to disprove Jesus and the truth of the resurrection, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he investigated. He, he has a journalism degree and a law degree because he has no time on his hands, right? And so he used those same tactics that he writes for the Chicago Tribune to investigate criminal cases, he uses those same things. I want to see evidence. Don't tell me what you know. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you can prove, as the theologian Tom Cruise said in A Few Good Men, right? If you know that movie. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you know. It matters what you can prove. I want to see evidence. I want to see eyewitness testimony. I want to see corroborative testimony. And so he interviewed and investigated top minds of Christianity. And it was a two-year-long process. And we know how the story ends. Instead of trying to prove his wife wrong, he comes to faith in Jesus because of the evidence of Christianity. Not some warm little feeling that he has because he ate some apple pie. <laughs> Not that he was swooned over, over some amazing worship, and he had this emotional response. The truth, the evidence of Christianity is what led him to belief in Christ. And so the same for us, we need to seek the things that are above. We need to get to the bottom. We need to investigate it. So if you're asking yourself questions like, how do I forgive someone? How do I deal with this grief? How do I share my faith? How do I? Those are great questions. Our doubts should drive us closer to Jesus, not further away. Even Jesus would say, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom in his righteousness. So there are some things in our lives that we need to seek out. We need to get to the bottom of the matter. We need to investigate. And what happens so much is we'll say, ah, I, just, I just don't know the Bible that well. Or I'm just not that smart. I can't read well. I can't read at all. Honestly, to all four of my kids read better than I do in the sense of comprehension. And I say it, that's not even a joke about it. They read faster. It's almost embarrassing when they're like, hey, read this. And they're scrolling on the phone. I'm like, slow down you know, because my seven-year-old reads faster than me. And I used to use that uh, defense to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of simple-minded. I don't read well. And no, get to the bottom of it. Investigate it. Because we're so quick to make our, a mask of our shallow faith with ignorance. We mask our shallow faith with ignorance when really it's just disobedience. Because Paul's telling us, seek the things that are above. So if there's something that you're struggling with, come and talk. I'm probably struggling with the same thing. It might be helpful to know that there's somebody else out there that's just as crazy as me. But let's investigate it together. Let's get to the bottom of the matter.
And then Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In verse two, set your minds on the things that are above. Our thought life reflects who we are. Proverbs 23, seven says, so as a man thinks, he is. What do you think about? Where does your mind naturally go? When you're just busy with work, you're doing a project. Where does your mind naturally go? Paul would say, seek the things that are above, but then set your mind on it. Because again, our thought life reflects who we are. If you turn one page back, you'll get to Philippians 4. In verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let these things capture your attention. So you're sitting at work, allow the things of God to capture your attention. Are you waiting in line at, for a cheeseburger? Let the things of God capture your attention. Like, think about these things. Let your mind side with God. And when it talks about set your minds on the things that are above, the other kind of definition means to side with him. You'll hear me say a lot of times, I don't need to defend my stance and marriage and gender and all the craziness that our world is trying to get us to drink the Kool-Aid about. I don't need to defend that. I'm just going to go with the guy that walked out of the grave. I'm going to side with him. I'm setting my mind on him. And so I don't need to know all the crazy that the world is trying to get me to understand. I just need to know the word of God and side with him. I'm, I'm with Jesus on this one. Because again, Seek the things that are above, but I'm going to set my mind to him. I'm going to set my mind to his word. I'm going with Jesus. And Paul says, but not on the things of this earth. And usually when we hear that, we always go to like the worst grotesque sins that we can think of and be like, oh, I don't think about those things, so I'm okay. But turn to 1 John. I love how John describes what are the things of the earth. And so 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's just clear, cut, dry, black and white. For all that is in the world, okay, what's all in the world that I need not to set my mind on? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Did you notice the things of the world are not these external things that we can just run away with? They're heart issues. It's the same. Every sin can be categorized in those three things, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The same three that got Adam and Eve in the garden over the fruit, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. The same three that Satan, quoting scripture, was trying to get Jesus to fall to in Matthew 4. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That every one of us fall to because we have lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This is not from the Father. And we do not need to set our minds on those. Why? Because the world is passing away. Set your minds to the things that are above the things that we were seeking out, that we investigated, that we got to the bottom of the matter. And why? 
Verse 3, Paul says, because you've died. Remember, you were raised with Christ. You've died. B.C. Nick is dead and gone, thank the Lord. And why, if we are trying to walk in the newness of light, walking and being led by the Spirit, are we so quick to want to run back to our old ways? We can't run back to old ways if we're living a new life. But you have died. That word died. Um, I'm going to be honest, as a young kid, even young in my faith, I had a strong fear of death. And not just how I'll go, but even what is after all of this? Because like, uh, what's that one song? Life's like an hourglass glued to the table. Man, doesn't that just wake you up in the middle of the night? Oh, that hurts. And my sand is going quick. That's all I'm thinking. I had a fear of death. Even as a believer, I had a fear of death, wondering, is he really going to let me in? Is there really even an afterlife? Even as an unbeliever, scared, wondering what that would be. Again, some of the ways that's going to bring about my death, not my favorites. Like if God is asking me for a top 10 ways I would like to go, I, I would like to speak into that if he would allow me to. You know, death by chocolate does not sound bad. <laughs> you know, and I'd be okay with that. Paul beheaded, Peter crucified upside down. Nick, dark chocolate. <laughs> they said it was good for the heart. Until I understood the scriptural definition of what death is. Death here, you have died, means separation, not annihilation, not an end. Like if you look at verse 5, it says put to death. That word death is where we get from the Greek word where we get necrosis, meaning a, a cessation of life. But that's not what's used here. For if you have died, means you're just separated. So for us who have died in Christ, we are separated from the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That word, a separation, that always comes from a divine closure. That because of Jesus, his work on the cross, that new life that we have in the hope of the resurrection, he has brought a divine closure to B.C. Nick. And it stresses an ending of what is former, separated from the world, but we're still in it. You might be hearing that, like separated from the world. Nick, last week you talked about asceticism where all these Christians try to pull away from the normal brokenness of the world to try to live holy and we shouldn't do that. How can we be separated from the world then? Separated from the world and our lust and our desires, but still in the world as the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus. We're in the world because of the love, the grace, the mercy, and the truth of Jesus, but we're separated from the world and our lust and our desires, just like Jesus. As he walked the earth, people would see how he lived and how he talked and what he did with his time, and they would say, he's not from here, is he? There's something about him that he is separated from the world, even though he was right in the midst of sin and brokenness. He was separated from the world, but still in it. And we are called the same way because, again, we have died. We're separated from those things, and our life is hidden with Christ. And where is Christ? We go right back up. Seated at the right hand of God. All past tense. Our life is hidden, current right now, and Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Think of the promise and the hope that we have that our life as followers of Jesus is hidden with Christ. And what does it mean to be hidden? Because the world around us is not going to understand it. 
They're going to look and see how we live under a different set of values and circumstances. We're going to live upside down compared to the world around us, which honestly, I think that we're living right and the world is the one that's living upside down because this is always how we were supposed to live. It's the world that got upside down. But they'll look at us and they won't understand Somebody's not going to see the morals, the beliefs, the behavior that we have and think, oh, Jesus, yeah, died three days, cross, resurrection, ascension, coming back again. Very cool. Very cool. I see that in your behavior. But they will see something. There's something about us as followers of Jesus that just does not make sense to a world that is broken and lost and still in the desires and the lust of their flesh and their eyes that they should see something different about us because, again, we have been separated from it. We're hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not to get too end times and eschatological on you, but listen to what Paul is saying. When Christ appears, we'll also appear with him in glory which is always a reference when Christ is appearing in his glory, a reference to his second coming. But how do we appear with Christ instead of being appeared, Christ appearing to us? How are we going to be with Jesus when he appears? Because Paul, as myself, believe in the rapture of the church, that God will take the church, seven years of tribulation, and then when he appears in his glory, the church will be with him Again, rapture is to him uh, when he appears second to the world will be with him, understanding our place there. So Paul's saying, understand the promise that you have, that you're going to appear with him in glory when Christ, who is your life, appears. See, that word life, the Greek word is zoe, and it both means a physical, the present physical, and the spiritual, particularly the future existence. And that where we started the whole conversation, the physical and the spiritual, our spirit and our soul and the connection between. So when we talk about that Jesus is our life, we're not talking about, oh, eternal life that starts when we die. We talk about an eternal life that starts in knowing Jesus, that he gives us life, not just eternally, but even now physically. Christ is physically our life now, today, as we speak, as followers of Jesus in the physical, but he's also our life in the spiritual, just like the body and the spirit matter because Christ went to a cross bodily and spiritually, that he went to a grave bodily and spiritually, that he rose out of that grave both bodily and spiritually. Because it would have been so much easier to say, oh, Jesus rose spiritually and his body is still there because you wouldn't need to prove that. But he rose physically. Why? Because he gives life to our physical bodies. And that's why the resurrection, even when our body dies and we are absent from the body but present with the Lord, we're going to be in an incomplete state. And that's why the hope of the resurrection is so great because we're all, believer or not, going to be resurrected to a bodily form. Some to be resurrected to life and others resurrected to separation, eternal death, as separation from God but we're all going to be resurrected. So we're going to have being brought to that complete state. And that's where Christ, who is our life, our Zoe life, both physically and spiritually in that existence. And so when you think about what gives the marble statue of Nick Pierce, a lot of marble, right? What gives the marble statue Nick Pierce life? What gives you life? 
Just talk to somebody for five or ten minutes, and usually you'll find out what gives them life. You know, sit with somebody during a Chiefs game, and you'll see <laughs> what gives them life. Wouldn't it be so cool if we had the same expression of life that we do in a Chiefs game as we would on a Sunday morning? Like I drop some big spiritual truth and we all cheer like it's a touchdown pass with three seconds left to go to win the game and the wave starts and ah, popcorn and everything happens and you spill your beer hat. Somebody's like, we can bring those? What? No. <laughs> we picked the right church. Here we go. But no, we have God of all creation who took on flesh, went to a cross for our sin to give us life. And we sit and have no response whatsoever. See, you start talking to me for a while, you'll figure out that cooking brings me life. That's a part of my life that brings me life. I'll start talking about, you know, a pulled pork, and you got you to gotta start that days before you're ready and wipe that bad boy down with some mustard and some seasoning. You got to get different types of wood and on the smoker. And just get exciting about that. No sweet baby rays, if you remember last week, right? It's like food brings Nick life. Yeah, there it is. But what brings you life? Is it Christ that brings you life? Is that what excites you in the world? Or do we, when we talk about our faith and we talk about Jesus, we talk about church, it's almost like, remember the really nasty like medicine that your parents used to make you take, you know, when you had like an ear infection? Is that how we look at Jesus? Like, okay, yeah, no, I'd love him. And we just have this burning, horrible sensation that we just want to throw up. Because sometimes we can act that way which is different because the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Where's the joy? Where's the joy of the Christian life? Not just that we have a hope that we're not going to go to hell, but a hope that we have today, right now, to be the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus. So what gives you life? Sports, hobbies, your position, your job, some secret sin that you just can't wait until everybody else is gone, that you can indulge in that? What gives you life? You worship whatever gives you life. That's your God. Let Christ be your life because your life is hidden with him. Just work it backwards. Set your minds on Christ because you have sought him out. You've investigated, you've gotten to the bottom of the matter. Why? Because you were raised with him through faith. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we just thank you, Lord. And I pray each and every one of us, by our faith in you, following you, Jesus, being led by your spirit, would continue to seek the things that are above, that we would set our minds, we would investigate, we would get to the bottom of the matter of our faith that we would know, we would consider, and we would present ourselves as instruments to you, Lord. Give us that kind of faith. We know that we are called to be separated from the world, but still in it. And so I pray that when the broken, lost, hurt of this world see us, they would see what brings us life, and that is you, Jesus. You are our life. Even your word says that you came to give us life and life abundantly, and I pray that that abundant life would be seen and visible in our everyday normal lives. Give us that kind of faith. Give us opportunities that we can invite others into this life to be a part of your family, to be brothers and sisters 
with one another to be co-heirs with you, Christ. Give us that kind of heart. Give us that kind of faith that we would live with boldness and courage. Continue to fill us with your spirit. Lead and guide us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.